Hi, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Antarctic Report podcast. I'm Nicholas O'Flaherty, editor of the Antarctic Report, an online portal dedicated to all things about Antarctica. Each week I talk to an outstanding scientist or adventurer, a writer, an historian, environmentalist, policymaker, people who actually work down on the ice itself. In fact, anyone with a real connection to Antarctica and a compelling story to tell. Tom Crean, Irishman, Gaelic speaker, pipe smoker, singer, publican of the South Pole Inn in County Kerry, petty officer in the Royal Navy, awarded the Albert Medal at Buckingham Palace by King George V for his heroic exploits saving lives on the Ross Ice Shelf, veteran of three of the most significant expeditions to Antarctica during the heroic age of polar exploration. Companion to both Scott and Shackleton, Tom Crean ended up spending more time in Antarctica than either of them, outliving them both. His face is there, peering out from the black and white images of the celebrated photographers of Antarctica. The record of Reginald Skelton and the Discovery Expedition of 1901 to 1904, Herbert Ponting's groundbreaking photography and Scott's Terra Nova expedition during the race to the Pole, and Frank Hurley's iconic images from Shackleton's endurance expedition, stuck in the sea ice of the Weddell Sea. Tom Crean appears throughout. What is truly remarkable about Tom Crean is that when you revisit his personal exploits in Antarctica and the Southern Ocean, you touch on some of the most heroic and poignant episodes in polar exploration. He's there with Scott on the Polar Plateau in January 1912, the last group to turn around, weeping disconsolately when he's told he won't be joining the final push to the pole. Tom and his two companions are the last people to see Scott's party alive. They almost suffer the same fate as Scott in a desperate 1,000 kilometre return journey back to base camp, out of food and suffering scurvy. It's only through Tom Crean's heroic solo dash of the last 56 kilometres that the three are saved. Nine months later, Tom Crean is present once more in the search party when they finally discover the grim sight of Scott's tent sticking out on the Ross Ice Shelf with three bodies inside. Weeping again, Crean enters the tent for the last time to kiss the forehead of Scott, the man they called the boss. Race forward to 1916, and Tom Crean plays a key role in the endurance expedition, handpicked by Shackleton to sail in James Caird to South Georgia in search of rescue. Remarkably still, he joins Shackleton and Walsley in the alpine traverse of the island to the whaling station on the other side. Despite these heroics, Tom Crean remained largely unknown as one of the central protagonists of Antarctic exploration. This week in our podcast, we speak to the man who set the record straight, Michael Smith. An English journalist who's worked at The Guardian and The Observer, Michael wrote the first biography of Crean entitled An Unsung Hero, Tom Crean which was first published in 2000. Since then, more than 100,000 copies have been sold. Today, the story of Crean is now included in the Irish school curriculum. Michael Smith, author of An Unsung Hero, Tom Crean, Antarctic Survivor. Welcome to the Antarctic Report. It's a pleasure. Michael, why, why the interest in Tom Crean? What, what made you write this book? 
slightly long-winded, but uh, I've always been interested in, in history, and in particular with uh, Antarctic and Arctic exploration. Um, and uh, I'd read lots and lots of books about <clears throat> people like Scott and Shackleton. And if you, uh, if you look at those books, you will notice the name Tom Crean keeps cropping up everywhere. Uh, because he is involved in, genuinely is involved in all the high points of those two men's lives. And uh, I genuinely looked around for a book. I thought, he sounds an interesting man. He's involved, he has his finger in every pie. Um, and I looked and there wasn't a book. And uh, putting it bluntly, I thought, well, why don't you get off your small but perfectly formed backside and do it yourself? <laughs> um, and so I began to um, rummage around, and I'm a, a journalist by profession, but I was on the verge of leaving, and I thought Tom Crean would be a, a suitable case uh, to investigate. And when I looked, of course, very briefly, there wasn't a book, and nobody had ever written a word about him, which I found astonishing. Um, there were a couple of uh, newspaper articles, but they were very, very flimsy, uh, and nothing that we didn't know altogether. So that intrigued me even more. The journalist in me, um, you know, the alarm bells were going, what, what on earth is this man who... Uh, you know, I, d I don't know whether your, your your people know, but Tom Crean spent longer in the Antarctic than either Scott or Shackleton. Mm. He outlived them both mm. and uh, died in bed, unlike the others. You know, mm -hmm. he was um, he was an extraordinary character and mm. he, his footprints are all over Antarctic history. Mm. So um, I was genuinely amazed that there was no book about him. Yeah. I, I thought, why hadn't anybody written about him? And I obviously I didn't know at the time what that was. And so. Uh, quite literally 20 years ago, about this time in 1997, I got in my car from the UK and drove across to Ireland and mm -hmm. began researching. It's an extraordinary story, the story of Tom Crean and, and the three different expeditions that he took part in into Antarctica. Before we start in the, that very interesting story, can you give me a short answer to the question about why it is that you think very little was written about him, or he had a very he had a very low profile in Ireland, didn't he initially? Well, it is not an exaggeration to say that um, twenty years ago, when I began doing, you know, I was in the foothills of the research. Um, quite literally, nobody knew anything about Tom Crean, other than the occasional reference in books about Scott and Shackleton. And I was uh, equally amazed when I got to Ireland and began rummaging around and discovered that he was even less well known. And he was obviously Irish, um, and I, I, I was absolutely taken aback that nobody knew why. And there are two really, two fundamental reasons. One is that he was um, a very, very poorly educated man. Um, uh, he could just about read and write, um, uh, and therefore he never wrote a, a diary. He didn't write very many letters, and those letters which have survived are really the handwriting of a. I'd say a 10 or a 12 year old, mm -hmm. um, it looks to me, I mean, I'm not an educationalist, but it looks to me like a man with a very, very low level of education. Mm -hmm. And education um, in the formal sense, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, exactly. But he had, he had no, none of it at all, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would possibly have left school at uh, um, 10 or 11, something like that. We don't mm -hmm. know because there weren't records, but he was a more value on the family farm in West Kerry than he was in a, in a schoolroom, to be frank. Sure. And so you have that is that he didn't he didn't write books and he didn't write diaries and he didn't write letters. But secondly, there is the the, the overwhelming issue of Irish history. Mm. And I don't know how much, you know, but it's quite a long and complicated sure. issue. But um, Tom uh, joined the British Navy in uh, like thousands upon thousands of young Irish lads mm -hmm. in the Victorian era. 
there was no work in Ireland, no prospects in Ireland. So he joined up at the age of 15, actually. He lied about his age, told them he was 16. Mm-hmm. He ran off to the Navy and served, in effect, for 27 years mm-hmm. as a, a petty officer. Um, now, during a lot of that period, he was down in the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he retired from uh, the Navy, which was in 1920, um, Ireland was in the middle of its war of independence from the British. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, after 800 years, they were finally getting rid of the British. Mm-hmm. And uh, anybody who worked for for the crown, as they called it, was regarded as a legitimate target. Now, by this, they, we mean policemen, uh, coast guard officers, postal workers, basically people in uniform. Yeah. <clears throat> so coming back to West Kerry, which is a fiercely nationalistic area, um, uh, coming back to Kerry, having been in the Navy for 27 years, was hugely unpopular and highly dangerous. Mm. In fact, Tom Crean's eldest brother, Cornelius, who was a great rugby player, incidentally, mm-hmm. um, was a sergeant in the police force, and he was shot dead. He was ambushed by the IRA and shot dead about okay. a month after Tom came back from the Navy. Right, okay. And so what he did, um, literally and metaphorically, is he kept his head down for the rest of his life. Mm. He never spoke at all about his exploits in the Antarctic with Scott and Shackleton. I can certainly understand all of that. It is nevertheless a little surprising, isn't it? Um, It's easy to say this today, but it does seem surprising that with the, the, the central role that he played in some of the most heroic parts of polar exploration with both Scott yep. and Shackleton and you know his name as you say his name you know appears in, in a number of the, the books that were published that sometime in the 20s or 30s people didn't make this some curious journalist or historian didn't bother oh, but they did oh they did no, they carry did, on they... I beg your pardon carry on no that's okay no people they they, they did try but but um, the connection with the British, even today in parts of Ireland, and we are talking 100 years later after mm-hmm. the, uh, the Civil War and uh, the War of Independence, sure. uh, it is still, the association with the British is still hugely controversial. And Tom was seen as a man who had served the Crown. Now, we, we would, I would disagree because he was, he was effectively serving Antarctic exploration. Yeah. But he was perceived as being a, 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 a member of the Crown. And therefore, he was highly vulnerable. Mm. And what I mean vulnerable is, I mean, he could have been taken out and shot. Sure. And therefore, what he did is he kept his head down. Mm. And in a, in a sort of bizarre twist of this story is that he opened a pub and he called his pub the South Pole Inn. And people <laughs> used to come from miles around to see this famous Antarctic explorer. And he would, excuse the pun, but he would melt into the background. He mm. wouldn't talk to anybody. Right. And I, uh, when I was doing my research, uh, I thought this was rather strange and a bit exaggerated. But until I began to interview his two very elderly daughters, mm-hmm. and one of them, during my conversation with her about Scott and Shackleton and the ice and all of that, she put her hand up and she said, there's no point in you asking me about Scott and Shackleton because you know more about my father than I do. Good God. So he wow. literally didn't even talk to his children wow. about what, what he had done and where he'd been. That's extraordinary. Um, so it is not, it's not a cliche. You can say this in some respects, not in the case of Tom Crean. He literally took his story to the grave. 
Wow. That's and if he wanted to have to round it off uh, very symmetrically, he built his own tomb. Mm, indeed, indeed. Okay, well, a let's... man in touch with his mortality. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, look, let's crack on into the story. Um, I guess oh, just just a very quick uh, a quick question that came up in my mind, Michael. Mm. That so it was twenty. How many years he was officially in the Royal Navy? Twenty seven. <clears throat> he was on the payroll for twenty seven years. Yeah. So so each time that he went south, which was three times, of course, to the to the ice. The Royal, he, he was always on the role of the Royal Navy and uh, he was, uh, you know, what, what yeah, was these, the... these expeditions were sort of partly privatised, you, you know, to use modern terms. Mm-hmm. The, the Navy would have lent men, uh, in effect, to these expeditions. Although they weren't official British Navy expeditions, they would have lent men. So nearly all the fellows on it were Navy, some merchant Navy, but mostly Royal Navy. Scott, for example, was Royal Navy. Sure. Shackleton was a merchant Navy man. Sure. And then, of course, there were the scientists. But the backbone of these expeditions, the muscle, if you like, was provided by the likes of Tom Crean. And they were, um, you know, for example, there were six uh, petty officers on uh, on Scott's last expedition, of mm-hmm. which three came from Ireland. And wow. they were all very similar to Tom Crean, very similar men, similar backgrounds who'd obviously run away to the Navy and become uh, very senior uh, ratings. You know? Okay. All right. Okay. So let's start with Scott's Discovery Expedition. And it, in terms of Tom Crean and Scott, it all starts in the port of Littleton, New Zealand, does it not? It does, yeah. Tom was, um, having joined the, the Navy, he, he rose through the ranks, uh, joined at 15, rose up the ranks, became petty officer, uh, and then got disrated probably for being drunk and disorderly, I would have thought. But anyway, he, uh, he, was, he was serving on a, on a ship called the Ringaruma, mm-hmm. which was operating in Pacific waters in and out of Australia and New Zealand uh, at the turn of the, the 20th century. And Scott's expedition, the Discovery, was the first real attempt by anyone to explore the interior of the Antarctic. There mm-hmm. had been voyages before but they really had not penetrated the interior they'd more or less landed on the beach and 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 come back and gone home and so this was a a massive effort whilst the uh the the last port of call before the ice was littleton Mm -hmm. and um, they pulled in there for repairs and whatever and one of scott's sailors got drunk attacked an officer and deserted Mm -hmm. and so scott suddenly had a vacancy for a seaman and Crean, who was a member of the Ringer Rumor, mm-hmm. heard about this um, and volunteered to take his place. And, uh, you know, when you say it quickly, it doesn't sound like very much, but <clears throat> you know, one has to bear in mind that uh, Discovery was gone for two years. Mm. Um, and you're com- clearly there were no radios in those days. Um, you were completely cut off. So this is an incredibly bold thing to do, to mm. say, yeah, I'll go away for two years. And um, and so Crean joined up and soon became, uh, on that expedition, uh, he soon became a, a very valuable member. They suddenly realised they had somebody here who was um, just a bit special. Yeah, well, um, can, yeah so can, can you describe what were those qualities, you think, that uh, well, people saw in him? Well, he was a very, him? very dependable man and he was incredibly reliable, um, as strong as an ox. But he also had what, you know, in, in modern terms, I guess you would talk about mountaineers, they have the mental strength. Mm-hmm. They don't, it's, not all, it's not all about physical strength. You know, you can look at some of the fellows who went to the Antarctic 100 years ago, and they're, 
they're tiny little fellas mm. um, but they were wiry they were tough and mentally they were never defeated and Crean is one of those indestructible characters who mm. could cope with anything that was thrown at him mm. um, he just had a, an extraordinary ability and to come up smiling sure. he had a great sense of humour he would break into song at moments of the most dire <laughs> circumstances sure. now that sounds a bit trite in many respects but not <clears throat> If you're on your uppers and it's minus 60 outside and the fella in the tent opposite you is singing a few songs to cheer you up, um, he was um, he was inspirational. Sure. And it is interesting that um, at the end of the Discovery Expedition, when they came back to the UK, Scott um, took time off to write a book and was then sent back into the Navy. He was a Navy captain. He was sent back into a ship. Mm-hmm. And one of the first men that he recruited to work with him as an ordinary sailor was Tom Crean. Ah, okay. So he obviously saw he saw the value of Crean in the ice, and he took him with him. That's interesting. So, okay. So po- after discovery, so this is what nineteen hundred and four, I think. It was. They came back in nineteen hundred and four. Right. So Tom, and, so Tom uh, Crean and Scott continue their association in the Royal Navy. They were never again separated. Okay. And, uh, they worked together pretty much from that moment until. Uh, they parted on the Polar Plateau in 1912, just sure. before Scott's death. And of course, b- before we leave dis- the Discovery uh, expedition, uh, as far as Crean is concerned, of course, Crean uh, also got to know Shackleton because Shackleton uh, played a role uh, under Scott's leadership in that Discovery expedition, yeah? Yeah, Shackleton was a junior officer on uh, um, on Discovery and he's, he'd seen... Antarctic exploration as a um, as an opportunity really for a bit of fame and fortune um, and uh, uh, unfortunately uh, Scott and Shackleton didn't get along too well together mm. and uh, incidentally Michael and I appreciate your book yeah. is about Tom Crean but yeah. do you can you shed any light on that um, yeah on that, that that sort of deterioration of the relationship that obviously occurred between Scott and Shackleton, and they never quite seemed to get over that, did they, um, in the Discovery Expedition? Yeah, well, expedition. I, I mean, as it happens, I've also written a biography of Shackleton, mm-hmm. and therefore I've, got, I've, I've explored that, uh, that relationship quite deeply. And it's, it's, a, it's a combination of things. Nothing in life is straightforward. Mm. They, the first thing to say is they were two completely different men. Mm. Shackleton was a, a very easygoing uh, man from the Merchant Navy, much, much less disciplined, um, he was always quoting poetry. He liked to drink. He liked the girls, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps too much at times. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott, on the other hand, had been sent to Navy College, uh, officer training college, when he was 13. Yeah. He was a very buttoned-up man, um, did everything by the book. Yeah. Um, he didn't make friends easily. He didn't confide in people. He never brought anybody into his confidence. Mm-hmm. And so he and Shackleton really rubbed up against each other the wrong way. Sure. And on on discovery, Shackleton almost died uh, because he, in many respects, he should never have been an explorer. He had a, a weak heart and mm-hmm. uh, and lung problems. And um, uh, Scott sent him home after that episode. Mm. And so he came home in what to Shackleton was perceived as disgrace. It wasn't a disgrace, and in my own view, Scott was absolutely right. He should have sent him home. He wasn't medically fit. Sure, but anyway. That that they went downhill from there, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when Shackleton came back uh, to the Antarctic in 1907, the, the Nimrod camped, expedition, yeah, yeah, on the Nimrod, he mm. camped in in 
in Scott's old base area in the McMurdo Sound. Sure. And, and that, um, uh, Scott sort of saw that as treading on his territory, really. Sure. And so the relationship went downhill even further. Sure. And so, so back to Tom Crean, because Crean doesn't yes, go... To Crean, that was that was very interesting, thank you. Uh, Crean doesn't go with Shackleton, of course, in that Nimrod expedition. He's with Scott. So let's race ahead to 1910, 1911. We get yeah, to Terra yeah, 1909, Shackleton gets to within 97 geographical miles of the pole and comes back and is a hero. He's sure. greeted by thousands of people in the streets of London. He gets knighted. Uh, the king of the country pays off his bills. Um, and uh, Scott is actually with Tom Crean one day when they see the newspaper reports about Shackleton's achievements. Mm-hmm. And he turns to Crean and says, I think we should go and have another go, <laughs> right. i.e. to the South Pole. So Crean is involved... As I said earlier, he's involved in all the kind of high points of this period of history. Sure, sure. And so one of the first men that Scott recruits to go back in 1910 is Tom Crean, and he is one of the petty officers who um, w- were very much the backbone of that expedition. Sure. And, of course, um, just uh, in terms of some famous names out of Terra Nova who were petty officers, uh, apart from Crean, we're talking about Lash- Lashley was a PO, wasn't he? As was, of Bill course... Bill Lashley was, uh, was the chief stoker. You had yeah. Patty Cohan, who was uh, another Irishman. Robert Ford was another Irishman. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, petty officer have, Evans, uh, Ed, of course. Edgar Evans. Ed Gevins, poor old Fred, Ed Gevins. Yep. actually, from Wales. Yep. Indeed. Okay, so so Terra Nova, uh, the race to the pole, Amundsen's also down there at the same time. Extra- extraordinary story. When Scott sets off for the crack at the pole, and um, you, you, you tell the story, Michael, I understand there are about 16 that start off, and the plan is as they go across the ice, ice shelf, heading towards the Beardmore Glacier that Shackleton had pioneered a couple of years prior, yeah. the plan was that... Uh, Scott was to send four back uh, until he finally had his party. And, of course, Crean yeah, was with him. Sort of, um, yeah, Cream, Cream was with him right, right up to the end, wasn't he, until yeah, that it final... Yeah, kind of a, a, a relay race in a way that mm-hmm. you, they set out with 16 men and dogs uh, <clears throat> crossing 400 miles of the Ross Ice Shelf <clears throat> up the Beardmore Glacier, <clears throat> dropping off um, uh, supplies and groups of four men until... They're on the polar plateau about 150 miles from the pole and Scott's down to eight. Mm. And the whole of the expedition at this point has been broken down into teams of four. Mm -hmm. So the four-man tents, four-man food, uh, supplies, everything. And at that moment, Scott rather panicked and he took another man. Why why do you think um, he did that? Well, I think he wanted extra muscle. I think he wanted extra pulling power and he chose... Henry Bowers, who was a a, a marine, um, but a phenomenally tough man, mm-hmm. a man of extraordinary strength, and he could also he could navigate, which was important. And so I think he he took Henry Bowers really as an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. But of course, the the other side of this story is that Scott goes on to the pole with with five people and Tom Crean, Bill Lashley and uh, Lieutenant Evans, different to the other Evans, mm. are sent back. Mm. Now, there is an, there's an extraordinary episode. Um, Scott, um, I mentioned earlier, was a, a difficult man to get along with. Mm. Uh, he didn't confide in people. And he hated confrontation, mm-hmm. which is very odd for a, for a leader. Sure. And um, he couldn't face Tom Crean to tell him that he wasn't going to the South Pole party. Do, do you think Crean... 
Crean thought he was going to be picked for that final party? I think so, and, he, and in many respects he should have been. I mean, Scott made a, a variety of, of mistakes, little mistakes, but which all added up really to, to, to the disaster. Amongst the mistakes he made was that he didn't properly investigate the physical condition of the eight men standing on the polar plateau in January mm-hmm. 1912. Mm-hmm. Had he looked closely, he would have found, for example, that, that Captain Oates, had very, very severe frostbitten feet. He mm. really, really should never have gone. Edgar Evans, Tom's friend... Would... Michael, Sorry. correct me if I'm wrong about Oates. Isn't there... You know, we subsequently find Oates's diary and it's, Oates himself was a little bit ambivalent, wasn't he? Is that correct? Well, I don't, I don't think he really expected to go along. I think it was, re- it was really Scott's rather token effort. He wanted the army uh, mm. to be represented at the pole and Oates yeah. was a, an army cavalry officer. Sure, sure. But... But he, if, he'd, if he'd looked at Oates, he would have seen that he wasn't physically fit. Mm-hmm. He didn't, he didn't in, the, in, the, in the outcome, and, and Oates obviously died tragically on the way back. Sure. If he'd looked at Edgar Evans, he had a very severe cut to his hand, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that, that was deteriorating badly. If he'd looked... In terms of Evans's cut, Scott found out about the cut after he... A couple of days later, hadn't he? And it was too late at that exactly, point. They, they had separated. Because, well, yeah, and the odd thing is that there was a doctor there, but Dr. Wilson, but he anyway, he didn't do any inspections either, which is, you know, as it turns out, was a mistake. Yeah. Now, so that if you take, if you go back to my point about there were eight men at the top of the on the plateau, there's two of them. It, realistically, you should have removed. That's down to six. You then got Bill Lashley and Lieutenant Evans are both absolutely exhausted, having done more man-hauling miles than anybody else, and sure. they are absolutely played out. Yeah. So that's two more. That's, that's half of your party is weak already. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that therein lies the clue as to why Tom Crean, who was quite probably the strongest and the fittest of all the eight men standing there that in, day... In, including Scott, that's why, you say that. Yeah. That's why Scott sent him back with Evans and Lashley, because he wanted... He knew that Cream was dependable, reliable, tough, durable, and that he would get them home. Mm. And as it happens, he was right. Yeah, just, of course, just. as, as we'll, only, we'll, only just. We'll discuss that in a minute, of course. The extraordinary way that those three made it back by the, by the skin of their teeth, and thanks to Tom Crean for that, of course. Well, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, It augured very badly for, of course, the people who actually went to the pole. Well, it's... It's a, it's a, it was another interesting, or really an intriguing point from history, which uh, nagged at me all the while, was that um, we all know what happened to Scott very tragically and the other four lads, and they, they died um, on the way back, having discovered Amundsen and beaten them to the pole. But what none of the history books mm-hmm. had written about, a, apart from in passing, and I really mean you know a couple of lines here and there, was about the return of Crean, Lashley and Evans. It's the most amazing story and there's there's mm. hardly anything written about it. It's and certainly because, is. understandably, that what happens next is completely overshadowed by the death of Scott and the other four boys. Yes. Scott's fate, of course, overshadows yep. absolutely everything you did right. The three, Crean, uh, Lieutenant Evans and Lashley, the, 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 those three guys are the last people to see Scott and his four companions alive as they, well, they, they sort of they wave, wave at them, don't they, across the horizon. Yeah, I think Crean, 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 is, Crean weeps, you know, doesn't Tom he? Crean is in tears. Yeah, indeed. And uh, they part and they, they go back. 
it's roughly speaking 750 miles is, mm-hmm. the, is the journey back to Cape Evans. Yep. Um, Over a thousand and, uh, kilometres for those who. Yeah. Um, well, in that. Um, uh, are you, sorry, are you dealing in kilometres rather than miles? Well, it's, yeah, let's talk in kilometres. Okay, I can I can do the translation. It's fine. It's just that all the diaries are written in mileage. Of course, <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, okay, so they set off, and you've got roughly eleven hundred kilometres to go. Sure. But with the two men, Lashley and Evans, already on the point of exhaustion, mm. and uh, as they descend the Beardmore Glacier. Evans, who's the only one who can navigate, uh, develops scurvy. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, cutting a long story short, he deteriorates to the point where he is frequently collapsing. And uh, scurvy is a very, very debilitating illness. Mm-hmm. And um, he, as the officer in charge, orders Crean and Lashley to leave him behind and save themselves. Mm-hmm. And they refused. And in fact, they, he did survive. And it's interesting that in his in Evans's own book, he said he went on to become an admiral in the British Navy, and he said it was the only time in his long naval career that anybody disobeyed an order. Mm-hmm. He was very grateful, however, for that dis- disobedience. Um, Tell us about the last 36 hours, I think. The three of them, they, they know they're close, they know they're close, but what they, they're running out of food, aren't they? They were basically, but they, they put Evans, who was dying, on the sledge and carried him as well. And so they were down to a few miles a day, stumbling along um, in sort of semi-comatose themselves from exhaustion and mm-hmm. hunger. Mm-hmm. And they got to within about 56 kilometers of uh, base camp, and the food had run out. Mm-hmm. And uh, Evans was on the, the brink of death. Lashley was played out as well. And Tom makes this incredibly brave decision to walk the last 56 kilometers alone, leaving Lashley to tend to the dying Evans Mm -hmm. to go and fetch rescue. Well, when you say it quickly, it might not sound very much, but you have to remember that when Tom makes this decision to do the last 56 K, he'd already walked for 2,400 kilometers Mm -hmm. in the space Mm -hmm. of four months. Mm -hmm. He he too would have been exhausted Mm. and would have been in early stages of scurvy Mm. Um, he didn't take a sleeping bag he didn't take a tent he didn't even take a means of making a hot drink Mm. he just set off and the only food he had was a couple of biscuits and three sticks of chocolate Mm. it's extraordinary isn't it and of course today we do have this amazing episode of um uh, um he 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 never gave an interview to anybody about this but he talked briefly to actually Cherry Garrard, who wrote the definitive book on the Scott Expedition. Mm. And uh, in it, he said that at one point, Crean, this is, at one point he sat down to have his rations, as he put it, <laughs> biscuits and chocolate. And he put one of his biscuits back in his pocket as he put it for emergencies. And you wonder what else could go wrong, you know, yeah. a meteor strike or sure. a, an yeah. earthquake. And he stumbled on for 18 hours. Mm. And... Uh, eventually fell into the hut and collapsed and passed out and was revived by a shot of brandy and was probably sick all over the doctor. Mm. Um, and the first thing he did when he came round was to volunteer to go back out and rescue Evans and Lashley, mm. Mm. which tells you an awful lot about the man. And of course he, he didn't, they didn't, they rescued, he, he was put to bed quite rightly and, mm. and it took months for him to recover. But recover he did and a few months later he went back out onto the ice where he found the bodies of scott wilson and henry bowers 
that extraordinary heroic effort to save his two companions successfully because they the dog sleds go back and they get Lashley and Evans down there in the tent quite quickly actually with the dogs they pass the winter and of course know that polar party have clearly perished obviously and so we get to the spring it's November 1912 and group of them head off looking for whatever. Our Crean's part of that, and I think it's the Canadian physicist, Silas Wright, isn't it, who, who sees the tent, which is extraordinary they found the tent, isn't it, on the middle of the Ross Ice Shelf? Yeah, it's very flat, the Ross Ice Shelf, and uh, um, it, it, it's a lump of ice, you know, and uh, so that there are no features on it, and, and obviously they saw this little mound. Mm. But what is interesting that your, your people may be uh, fascinated to know is that I mentioned earlier that I'd interviewed Tom's um, two daughters. Mm -hmm. And um, the only thing they told me, which I'd never read anywhere else before, about the expeditions was a lovely moment that when they found Scott's body, they decided that it would be fitting to just collapse the tent over them and Mm -hmm. bury them where they they found them Mm -hmm. and build a a mound of, uh, of ice over the top. And, um, before they did that, they took their personal effects and the diaries and all that sort of stuff. And Tom apparently went back in to the tent before they collapsed it and kissed Scott's forehead. Mm. Gosh. Which, in a way, illustrates that he held no grudges against the man who wouldn't take him to the South Pole. It's a lovely, a very, very poignant story. Obviously, Scott, there's a lot of historiography about that uh, expedition, of course, where... Yeah, you know, he has his leadership has certainly come in for a lot of criticism, hasn't it, from historians? What do you think Crean felt about Scott's leadership? It's very hard to know what what Crean's view was. Um, I think that he was um, by nature a very very loyal man. Mm. I don't think he would have criticised Scott other than in in the you know day to day minor minor irritations that we all get with the boss. Mm. Um, I don't think it wasn't in his makeup to be that that sort of critical, and he never um, he never got involved in the dispute about Scott versus Shackleton, for example. And mm. one has to remember there are very very few men who serve with both Scott and Shackleton, and I think part of the reason for that is that is that Tom didn't hold grudges and he didn't he didn't take sides. He mm. just got on with what he did. Sure. And um, so I suppose the short answer is we don't know for sure because he didn't write anything down he never talked to anybody but it would because I think I know the character fairly well I don't think it would have been in his makeup to have been highly critical of Scott sure okay so that closes the Terra Nova expedition with the news is telegraphed back to the UK this is where just 1913 is the year before World War One begins and the, the great yeah. mythologizing about Scott begins, of course, at that point. So we then get to back to Shackleton, of course, and on the eve of the Endurance Expedition. How did Tom Crean end up on that? Well, um, just to sort of rewind very, very briefly, um, Terra Nova doesn't come back to the UK until um, the summer of 1913. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they are then taken to Buckingham Palace and given their medals. And Tom is awarded the Albert Medal for his bravery of saving the life of Evans and Lashley. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the other thing he does, which is a, as a sidebar, but is in- interesting, that's when he buys the license for what turns out to be his pub, the South Pole Inn. He obviously okay. goes back to Ireland. And in Ireland, you can buy licenses rather than um, they're not licensed by the local authorities. 
Um, and so he, he then is goes back to the Navy, as they all did. They went back to their day jobs. Mm-hmm. Shackleton, at this point, is putting together his wildly ambitious plans to make a, the trans-crossing of the Antarctica coast-to-coast. Coast. Mm-hmm. And he goes to Shackleton, to, to, to Crean, I'm sorry, uh, Shackleton goes to Crean and recruits him as second officer. Mm-hmm. So that would, be, in effect, be his number three. Um, and uh, well, that, That's quite uh, extraordinary, Navy, isn't it? Because Crean is not a commissioned officer. He's a no. petty officer. So he had that level of seniority in the endurance expedition. Well, he did. And, and Shackleton's deputy is Frank Wilde, mm-hmm. um, who wasn't an officer either. Right. And they were both cut from the same cloth, really, uh, Wilde and Crean. Very, very tough, dependable, resilient uh, men um, with extraordinary mental strength and and resilience. Um, And uh, Wilde had been with uh, with, with Shackleton on the Nimrod expedition and obviously Crean had been with Shackleton on the Discovery expedition. So the one thing you can say about Shackleton, he had the most amazing ability to pick the right men for the job. And yeah. certainly in the case of Tom Crean and Frank Wilde, he chose wisely. Sure. So they set off in 1914. World, World War One actually just begins, and they still they set off, don't they? It's it August the 1914. Day, the day of declaration of war. Right. Quickly go through those celebrated moments of the endurance story, Michael, until well, we get to, thing, you know, Tom Crean's yeah. heroics. Well, the, 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 the expedition actually is a two-pronged affair. One half is going down to South America and into the Weddell Sea to land, and that's carrying Shackleton and Crean and Wilde to make the crossing of the Antarctic. On the other side of the continent, leaving from Australia and New Zealand, is the Aurora. Um, That's going to drop men who are going to lay food supplies along to the bottom of the Beardmore Glacier so that uh, Crean, Shackleton and the others can pick up food on their way from the crossing. Now, in, in, in many respects, um, uh, what happens next is a blessing because I don't think Shackleton and Cream would have survived had they made the crossing. It's hard to know, obviously, but my judgment would be that they would have struggled to survive. Mm. They enter the Weddell Sea in uh, in January 1915, mm-hmm. and the ship is immediately trapped by the ice. And in fact, Endurance is making its maiden voyage, believe it or not. So mm. it only made one voyage, and that was to the bottom of the Weddell Sea. Right. Um, in, in pieces. So by, by the third week of January, they are trapped, 28 men on board, including one man who's stowed away. Um, and uh, it's in the grip of the ice. Now, the Weddell Sea is like um, a cement mixer. It goes around and around. Uh, and so they were caught in the currents and the ship was smashed to smithereens. It took 10 months to sink. Um, but they drifted in a in a semicircle for 3,000 kilometres, living on the ice for most of the time. And it's interesting that um, that there was a very severe psychological strain on the men because most of them were just ordinary sailors who'd signed up to drop these Mm. explorers on the coast of Antarctica and Mm. take the ship back to Buenos Aires. We're in the the Antarctic winter, of course, but at this stage, aren't we? Yeah, they survived the Antarctic winter. They were on the ship during the winter, so they would have had some protection, it's fair to say, but nonetheless, it's still bitterly cold. And 24-7 darkness for uh, quite some time? Yeah, 24-hour darkness the whole time Mm -hmm. uh, for about four months, roughly. But anyway, they drifted for around about 3,000 miles. The ship is crushed and finally sinks. 
And as I say, you have this very severe psychological strain of these men because with no radio, nobody knew where they were. Nobody was coming to get them. And uh, um, the the intense pressures. And Shackleton at that point really could rely on only two men. One was Frank Wilde and the other was Tom Green. Mm. Um, and they were his bulwarks. You know, they were really were um, uh, formidably loyal um, and dependable. And of course, being ordinary men, they re- they related to the ordinary sailors. They could they talked the same language. They smoked the same pipes. You know, they yeah. they, uh, um, they, they this wasn't this wasn't a class ridden officer uh, uh, status. They got along with everybody. Sure. And people looked up to them. Sure. And so, so they drifted for um, uh, sixteen months, in effect. Mm-hmm. And it was in April nineteen sixteen that they uh, launched the boats and and eventually reached Elephant Island, uh, which is a very, very remote spot sticking out of the Antarctic Sea, mm-hmm. Antarctic Ocean, I should say. Um, and they landed there in early April of 1916 mm-hmm. with many of the men on the brink of collapse. Uh, sure. Shackleton's own diary records that... Um, 10 of the 28 men were off their heads. We don't know quite what he means by that, but that's mm, one assumes psychologically off sure. their heads. Yeah. And interestingly enough, that they had three little boats and Crean was in the smallest and the most vulnerable of those boats. And the officer in charge um, uh, was not well and he he collapsed uh, on the, on the seven-day journey from the ice to Elephant Island. And what is fascinating is that Crean just simply stood up and took over as though it was his normal calling in life. Sure. And it was Crean who got those eight men on the Stancombe Wills through to Elephant Island. It's a remarkable piece of um, of seamanship. Mm. And when they landed, as I said, about 10 of them were physically or psychologically unfit. Uh, but of course, nobody knew they were on Elephant Island. They had mm. no radio. There was no means of signalling. And it's crucially, it's off all the sea routes. Nobody was passing by. Sure. There were no whaling ships coming to their rescue. Sure. And, and so, it's middle of World War One too, so there would have been not a lot of interest in going down to Antarctica, I assume. None at all. But but everybody assumed they were on the Antarctic continent making the crossing. Sure. So there was no concern for them at this point. Mm. But since nobody was coming for them, and a third of the party were incapacitated in one form or another, Shackleton took the bold decision to take the largest of the boats and sail to uh, South Georgia, which is around about 1,200 kilometres away. Mm. He has that big decision, doesn't he, Michael? He has who, the big who, decision. Who does he take with him? Yeah. Well, this is this has been, been a sort of a subject of some controversy over the years as to who he who he chose. I mean, what what we know, in my view, is he took the best seamen. Mm. He took the men who were best capable of surviving. This is a hopelessly optimistic journey mm. i mean one in a hundred chances you give them, you have an open boat uh with uh, no no decking the decking so to speak was a lump of canvas mm. um crossing crossing the antarctic ocean what's what's the length and of the it's a james Keard, isn't it what's the length of that 22 feet it's it's a tiny little but it still exists um now what is interesting from our point of view is that uh, uh shackleton wanted cream to stay on elephant island with the 22 men who were going to be left behind and to help Frank Wilde. Mm-hmm. Wilde was also deputed to stay behind to look after the men. And uh, Crean begged Shackleton, literally begged him, 
to take him. He what, wanted to take his he, chances at he, sea. Yeah, he what, didn't uh, want to be left on the island. Uh, okay. And so he took... Shackleton was a seaman himself. He took Frank Worsley, the New Zealander, who was a great uh, captain, a fantastic navigator. He took Crean. He took a man called Tim McCarthy, who was an Irishman, mm-hmm. who'd been brought up with small boats and was reckoned to be the best small boat man in, in the country mm-hmm. uh, on the expedition. Um, he took John Vincent, who was a very experienced sailor. And he took McNish, the uh, um, carpenter, the ship's carpenter, who again is a man with a long history of uh, of uh, seamanship, but but in particular it was McNish's handiwork that had made the James Caird seaworthy. Mm-hmm. He had adapted the little vessel, um, and without McNish's um, efforts, um, it, they would not have got through. And it's very sad uh, to say that Shackleton never appreciated his his work as well, and he was um, not given the polar medal at the end of the expedition, which mm. I think reflects very badly on Shackleton, but mm. that's another subject, really. Sure, okay. um, and so they, they set off, um, leaving the 22 men on Elephant Island, mm. waving, hopefully, as they disappeared behind these mountainous waves. And um, they were gone for 17 days, and mm. Worsley's navigation is beyond parallel. It's just extraordinary. He only took four sightings in a, in the space of 17 days, and he landed on South Georgia um, first time, basically. Because mm. they land on the southern coast of South Georgia. Yeah, this is a really important point, actually, because um, one thinks of, you know, they've, they've made it and you could kind of breathe out metaphorically. Well, the whaling stations where they were looking for a ship are situated on the north side sure. of um, South Georgia. They landed on the south side, and it, it, as they came into land, they lost the rudder to the little James Caird boat. Mm-hmm. So it was now reduced effectively to a rowing boat. But these men could barely stand, let alone um, uh, row. And so it was decided <clears throat> they would leave the three lads on the beach with the boat, and that Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean, who were still the strongest of these men, would make the crossing of south georgia's mountains and glaciers a journey of somewhere between 60 and 70 kilometers Mm. difficult to know because clearly there were no maps and again at that time nobody had ever crossed south georgia and there were no maps Mm. um all the maps of south georgia were were the the center of the island was blank sure there was nothing uh, uh, because nobody had been there and um, the, the crucial uh, decision which Shackleton made was uh, not just in his personnel, but was in travelling light. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't take a sleeping bag or a tent. Mm, that's uh, extraordinary. And, uh, so they were going to do it as a, in a sort of solo mm-hmm. dash of, of, of 60, 70k. Um, and I think that in taking somebody like Crean, he saw in him not just the, the the physical strength but the mental strength mm. and and there are episodes when the, you know that you, you have them absolutely on their uppers mm. fighting for their lives mm. and tom crean is singing yeah that's Stop the sure. sense of optimism that he brought to the party and he was cracking jokes um and it was said when they were making the crossing from South, from from uh, from Elephant Island to South Georgia, that at night, on the Southern Ocean, the only thing that could be seen and heard 
was the glow of Tom Green's pipe and the occasional songs that he sang. Mm. And nobody could understand what he was singing <laughs> because he was singing in Irish. Okay. And obviously uh, Worsley and uh, Shackleton, who wrote diaries, couldn't speak Irish. And Tom was almost certain he was an Irish speaker. He mm. would have been singing in his own Gaelic tongue. And so he is, he is that kind of rock. And um, they eventually stumbled through after 36 hours and reached the whaling station. And, of course, uh, again, a rather poignant moment as they stumble into the whaling station. The first people who see them coming are two little boys playing football. Uh, and they so these, are, these are Norwegian the, whalers, aren't they, the, the station? Yeah, all, they were, although it was a British protectorate, they were full of Norwegian whalers. Yeah. But, of course, no, they thought they were scarecrows or, or ghosts because nobody <laughs> came from the interior sure. of Antarctica. Yeah. The, 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 you know, the whole focus of the place is, is out to sea. Sure. And so um, these boys fled, and eventually they, they wind up in the office of the manager, the station manager. And their first question to him is, is the war over? Mm, God. Because this is May 1916. Yeah. And... Uh, these lads were quite possibly the only people in the world who didn't know what was going on mm, because mm. they'd been so out of touch with what with what was going on. They'd missed, for example, they'd missed Gallipoli. Mm. They'd missed the Easter Rising in Dublin. Mm. They were just about on the brink of the Battle of the Somme. Sure. So you had these momentous uh, events happening and these 28 men on the Endurance Exhibition were the only guys who didn't know what was going on. Sure, yeah. So, gosh, that is an astonishing story, isn't it? So Crean uh, plays such a pivotal role in that. Um... Well, they, they, then, they then had to get back to Elephant Island to rescue the 22 lads under Wild who mm. were still there. Now, yeah. because it was midwinter, um, they couldn't get in. They made four attempts to get in mm. and over, a, over a space of just over four months. And it wasn't until August 1916 that they broke through the ice and managed to reach the island where they found everybody was uh, was alive. And there's a lovely uh, little story which I always enjoy telling because it, it, it brings up here you have these these men, you know, leaping up and down with joy at being rescued and the, the joy for Shackleton and Crean to see their comrades still alive. And as they're rowing ashore to pick them up in, in the little rowing boat, Tom Crean can be seen standing at the front of the little rowing boat hurling packs of tobacco at the men <laughs> because he knew that these fellows were all completely addicted to smoking in yeah. those days you got free tobacco if you were a sailor sure and so they were completely addicted uh, to smoking and uh, he knew exactly what they missed it's a lovely touch of yeah. of humanity even in that that moment of ex exaltation Sh shackleton remember the little things the chilean government comes to the party doesn't it it's the chilean tugboat out of punta Arenas, the elcho the Chilean lent them a, lent them a ship, yeah, and uh, and and they and they brought them back to to, uh, yeah. to South America, where yeah. they were paraded up and down, um, and uh, you know celebrated. And what's what's curious, so the two things happen then is one is the party breaks up. Shackleton actually goes back, um, goes through the Panama Canal and comes back down to Australia to rescue the men who on the other side of the continent who had laid the food depots for him, mm. but of course he never came for the food, yeah. um, where he found that three of the men had died. Yeah. And that, of course, went down very, very badly in Australia, because partly because of the war, mm. 
people were still reeling from Gallipoli. Yeah. Uh, understandably. Sure. And uh, suddenly, this you know, this another loss of life. So Shackleton was not very popular mm. in the Antarctic. But on the other side, you have Crean and the other men. I mean, it's almost breathtaking when you think about it now. But this all happened in September 1916. They they arrive in in uh, in South America in September 1916. They have a few drinks, which I'm sure you'd say they are entitled to. Mm-hmm. And um, they are then the party breaks up and they go home and they all go straight into the war. Sure. So, so Crean, it's um, we basically have two Crean. more two more years of World War One ahead of them. Does Crean does yeah, Crean he, actually he, he go to sea? With the Royal yeah, Navy? he does. He yep. he served in the Royal Navy, and as it happens, just by chance, he was stationed in Ireland um, on the west coast of Ireland, which was really guarding the uh, the sea routes into England from the, from North America. So yep. he he would have played a fairly important part. He survived, which is which is lucky. He got married during that time because he obviously he was stationed in Ireland, and he would have had the odd period of leave, and so he he dashed off and married a local girl from the village where he was born. And um, then he's, when the war had finished, he carried on, uh, came back to Ireland in 1920, which is where we began, really. That, yeah. uh, that's where he began to keep his head down because it was, it was highly dangerous. Yeah, astonishing story. You wrote the book how many years ago, Michael? The book was published in the year 2000. Right. And um, uh, uh, <laughs> the curious thing is, I mean, all authors, will, even Joanne Rowling will tell you that... Uh, we all have trouble getting our books published, but nobody wanted to write. Nobody wanted to publish this this book because they said, "Oh, it's just another story about Scott and Shackleton." Good and God. I kept saying, "No, it isn't. <laughs> it's got a lot more to it." And then, anyway, it took took me two years to find a publisher, and uh, I'm pleased to say that it's since gone on to sell over 100,000 copies. And um, uh, Tom, I've also written an uh, an adaptation of the story for younger readers, and. Tom's story is now on the school's curriculum in Ireland, mm-hmm. and the book's been transport, uh, translated into Korean and Chinese, uh, not by me, I might add, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, lots of other spin-offs. There's a one-man play, there's a Tom Crean lager, and you can barely get in the door of the South Pole Inn in Alice School now if you uh, if you ever come over to Ireland and fancy a pint, um, uh, you can hardly get in the door. The Crean's family no longer own the pub, I understand, yeah? No, they don't, no. Okay, but the, 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 the pub is still called the South Pole? Oh, it certainly is, yeah. Oh, very good, okay. In fact, I should be in it in a few weeks' time. Fantastic. Michael, that is an extraordinary story. Thank you very much for sharing it. Not at all. It is, it is, um, it is genuinely a remarkable story, and I do quite a lot of public speaking on the subject. And I'm amazed at the number of people who say, I've never heard of this man, even now. So it, it, is, it is an extraordinary story, and it deserves to be told. You know, this is a, a real, um, this man was a real hero. Mm, indeed he was. And it's interesting, uh, you, you may be, you know, your, your, your people may be interested to know that um, Tom, Tom Crean shared a birthday with Edmund Hillary. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, a few years ago, there was a, a big exhibition about Tom Crean's life in Ireland. And Ed Hillary made the pilgrimage to Ireland to open it. Oh, great! Fantastic. And I met him in the South Pole Inn, and we had a drink together in the South Pole Inn. Very. And apt. he knew about he knew a bit about Crean. Obviously, he didn't know as much as I did, but he knew he knew a bit about it. And uh, a very very charming uh, man. Um, he was very elderly, obviously, at that point. But mm. very good. Oh, look, Michael. Thank you. Thank you very much for telling that story. 
Not at all. Um, anything else you want, just give me a shout. You know where I am. That was Michael Smith, author of An Unsung Hero, Tom Crean. If you'd like to know more about Tom Crean and Michael's book, check out the episode notes on antarcticreport.com, where you'll find more weekly episodes of the Antarctic Report podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or comment, email us at info at antarcticreport.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Antarctic Report. If you like what we do, you can review the podcast on iTunes. You'll be helping others to find us. Thanks for listening to the Antarctic Report podcast. See you next time. Thank you.